Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanBub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Diana Montalian. Based in Hudson Valley, New York, Diana is a software engineer and team leader and founder of Mentrix, where she designs technology systems and teaches workshops on systems thinking. You can follow her on Twitter at Diana Montalian and on Mastodon at Diana at Hackyderm. Uh, it's like, well, you can probably guess how that's spelled. And check out her website at mentrixgroup.com, where you can sign up for her workshops, and you can also find a lot of great talks and interviews with her on YouTube. Diana is the author of the Lean Pub book, Writing is Thinking, Practices for Technology Professionals. In the book, Diana shows how a variety of specific writing practices can help us think better about how we think in the first place and help us think better with other people arriving at practical, actionable outcomes by creating conceptual integrity. In this book, we're going to talk about Diana's background and career, uh, systems thinking and nonlinear thinking, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a writer. So thank you very much, Diana, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This is all things I love to talk about, so I'm so happy to have an hour to do so. Awesome. Thank you. Um, uh, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how you found your way into a career in, in tech. Hmm. Well, um, so I... I I spent a lot of years recovering from my childhood, so we probably don't want to go too far, um, too far into that because we could spend the whole entire time talking about the impact of trauma and these kinds of things. But I grew up in New England, and um, I, I got a lot of what I needed and support from extracurricular kinds of things. So, for example, I always did music and I always did acting and um, uh, the whole like high school. So fame, the movie fame, I, I, I was going to live forever. That, that was, that was, that's like, to me, the movie fame was everything I thought was matterful when I was a kid. Um, and I also was in drum and bugle corps, which is like, very um, uh, complex marching, basically. Um, uh, you, there's uh, people play instruments. I twirled the, uh, a sword. Like <laughs> that was my that was one of my one of my funnest things to practice. And so um, and so for me, despite there being a lot of really um, Things I don't things that were painful or difficult to to move through. There was also a lot of um, vibrancy in in the things that I found to really immerse in. And so the, the library, for example, I was one of those kids that came home every week with a stack of books that I put under my under my bed. And it's interesting because even though my career now is not the one I thought when I was nine. I also thought I'd have a horse, and I don't. So um, I do have three dogs and cats and chickens and others. So, but not not a horse. Um, it there's it's been I've been thinking lately a lot about how much overlap there is in the kinds of ways that I liked to show up in the world and be in the world when I was a kid, compared to. Um, you know, here I am all these all these years later, um, it, even though, like I say, there's, they're not the same. They're, you know, I didn't stay in, in doing the same things. I don't do acting anymore. But I did, um, when I went to, you know, when I went to college, I only wanted to study theater. And I went to like the best school that, that, that I knew of to go. And of course, the feedback was, "This is a waste. You can't do anything with a um, with a degree in theater. You need. Why don't you go into banking? Bank. You like banking? I was a teller in a bank in high school. That was my part time job. Um, and yet, uh, I am strongly informed, and I use it all the time." I do, so I really and and writing and reading and doing all the other things that I did when I was a kid. I can say even though that's not my career, it's it's interesting how much those skills have been really really valuable. And you don't mind being poor when you're 18, so <laughs> it was the right time to do it. Yeah, that's no. Th thanks very much for sharing all of that. That's really great. Um, uh, as a uh, 
former English major who went into investment banking afterwards. I'm uh, familiar with the idea of you know skills that transfer over and being told that what you're doing is useless, um, which is which is I don't know. I, it makes me both laugh and get angry sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah. But but I gather from your uh, LinkedIn profile that you um, so you you made this switch eventually. You went back to back to college. Um, and you studied, I think, both both writing and um, computer science when you did that. Yeah. So, um, so when um, so my my son, when it, it was pretty obvious by the time he was in first grade that the school system wasn't really going to work for it. Like he he tested off the scale in some areas and was you know, his own age group in other areas. And I couldn't find a way to, to accommodate that. The school was like, well, if he finishes his first grade math workbook, we'll give him his second grade math workbook. And I'm like, but he's doing high school algebra in his head. Like, I, it's not been... And so there, were, there was a lot of trying to figure out what to do um, to give him what, what he needed in these varying level ways. And so what happened, we, we, we started homeschooling and he pretty quickly got ahead of me in science. And so I called the local um, University of Southern Maine where I was living in Portland, Maine at the time. And I said, you know, my son is young but he wants to take a course, is that okay? Uh, and they said, yes. Then when they found out that he was only nine, they were like, Okay, if the professor says yes, and if you come with him, if you bring him. So I brought him to physics at the at, um, in University of Southern Maine, and I just fell in love with it. I, this, and we know when I was a girl, it was very difficult to be someone who loved math and science. That wasn't, you know, you're supposed, you'd be pretty and thin, not good at math. And so, and, and it wasn't really also where I was going either at the, at the time. And so it was a late bloomer in that way. And so I went back to school to study physics and had to take a computer science course um, And in the first, when I first went back and then I, I fell in love with that even more. Then I'm like, okay, this is so much better. But I had been a writer before I went back to school. And that, I went to Stone Coast Writers Conference, which the university um, uh, holds every every year. And so I couldn't decide. I couldn't, like, I, I didn't, I didn't, I had decided, I didn't wanna, I didn't, I couldn't decide. I, even now, as I say it, I can't even finish the sentence because I remember how, um, how, I couldn't really pull them apart, which if we fast forward 20 years or so, I discover they're not two different things. But at the time, I thought that they were. But also, um, web courses were in media studies, in the media studies department, and in the engineering department. I learned um, that my first uh, web class was taught by the engineers and then computer science was very c plus plus like you know two years of c plus plus and algorithms and things like that and so you know because this was my second time around i didn't need to do four years and i didn't so i did um computer science sort of in the minor track and media studies um to have my degree in but in fact it was the way that i combined computer science but specifically for digital technology, which is really that integration was what was really interesting to me. So, um, so I sort of made a mishmash of those skill sets that were spread around in different departments. And were you always um, interested? I mean, once once you sort of you know were, were studying computer science and things like that, was that that sort of like systems integration i guess one might call it was that always an interest of yours you know that like there's there's um uh a system level of thinking that's going on that's sort of like different different from the coding layer yeah so what what um for a long time i did not have words for myself 
right? And so I, um, when I finished school, I moved to Montana and bought an independent bookstore. Like I didn't even dive fully into technology right away because there was still a lot. So the web was still a lot of front end work, design work, which is not really what I do. And there wasn't a lot of back end yet. Now, of course, there there is. And and so it's interesting because I was being interviewed recently and he we were talking about the bookstore and how I approached it. And he did the tilty head and said, it's a system. You designed a system. That's right. That's exactly what I did. And so what what saved me, what rescued me from not knowing the answer to your question is that um, is that over time, everything in the technology world, everything that I was doing software engineering around, the paradigm around us shifted. And now the, the internet is an information system. And all of the systems thinking that I had already always done sort of in the closet, all of the ways that I thought about the world and approaching the world, that worked or didn't work really in the software engineering world suddenly became essential. And so, um, and so when I, the first role I had called a systems architect, which I've been since was really just sort of trying to, to, um, correctly describe the work I had always been doing and more or less coding, more or less abstraction. Those things have varied from circumstance to circumstance, but the, um, the being interested in systems is I'm, I'm starting to think I was born that way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And, and to, to, um, maybe pick a sort of very specific example of what maybe we might be talking about when we're talking about systems. Um, you did a really interesting project for The Economist um, for a couple of years, uh, which I which I gather, and which is, by the way, one of one of my like favorite publications, but but partly like it's it's so good at technology. Um, uh, you, you, you like uniquely good, I would say, at least in my as a news, a sort of like, you know, amateur newsreader kind of person. Um, uh, the FT is also actually very good. I don't know why they're both in London. If that makes, if there's some sort of connection happening there, but um, uh, I gather so you worked on the system. So basically, there's a bunch of people who have to produce writing, and then that writing has to get published, and then that has to go out to a lot of different people. Um, and was that was that the kind of thing that you were working on? Yeah. So when when I first worked with them, and I'm so glad to hear, by the way, that you know, your, your experience with them. That's, that's so, um, um, it's always wonderful to feel that you're, that you've invested in missions that people really need and appreciate. Like that's, that's something I've really tried to do in my career is to do things that later on, I feel, I still feel they're very valuable, right? The, the mission I was serving. Um, so when they were first my client, I was um, the lead of a, a software engineering team where we specialized in Drupal, which is for a open source web um, content software. And uh, at the time, The Economist was adopting it for their web presence, and they were for a while the biggest Drupal instance that there that there was. And so I I worked with the the New York team and the London team. And we built this and extended, and we wrote a lot of custom code for for this. And then went off and did a bunch of other things over over the next, I think, probably seven years or so. I can't quite remember the. And then I was moving to New York, and there was a new CTO at the Economist who heard that I was coming there and said, "Oh, are you know, are you are you looking for work?" And they were at the point as. Uh, really everyone that I have worked with over the years of digital transformation. And by this, they mean we used to be a print publication and then we were a print publication and a website. And now there are 42 destinations for every single article that goes out and we do films and we do um, audio and we do events. And um, the print software is becoming obsolete. 
And so we're going to have to replace it, but we want to replace it in taking a, a step forward. And also we haven't failed to publish since 1843. So we don't, we definitely, you know, going offline is not a thing. And so, um, so the systems work that I did um, with a really um, great bunch of teammates is figure out what this system can can look like and and what what kind of what the steps are to be able to um to to the system looked like everybody's information system i used the picture of the weasley house the burrows in the harry potter story because in the picture it's like they add a piece by just sticking it on the house and sticking it on the house when I first uh, started working on it, I wrote a story about an article being published. And I did that rather than make a traditional architecture model because A, no one really knew how a story, an article went through the whole system because different people work in different parts and the mobile team works, the app team would work separately. And also to um, for people to lay people to read and understand so that they could um, really be part of this this decision making. So um, so the work with them has really been since then the work I predominantly do because the challenges that they face are the challenges that everyone faces and COVID has the the pandemic has made this um, an even bigger question because now digital systems have to um i mean when i when i was a girl we'd mail letters we called each other on the phone all of these systems going to a movie mailing a letter um sharing documents uh, getting together with friends going to the pub all of these things now are all software we walk around with software in our pockets like, and we add software and take software off. And this is just in the last 40 years. There's a tremendous amount of proliferation of software that now is all in relationship to each other. Yeah. It's, and it's really, it's, that, what do we do? That's really interesting. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the concept of digital transformation, I mean, it, it might, as a term, it might even sound old fashioned to some people, to some people listening, like, isn't everything digital already? And the answer is actually no. Um, no. uh, you know, and like when we say only 40 years, that might make us sound like the ages we are, but, um, uh, but really that's not that long. Um, and for the amount of things that have happened, but there are all these legacy, legacy systems and they, they were actually often very sophisticated. They just weren't digital, um, right. systems. Um, and so for example, um, I know that like the, the U S military, for example, one of its challenges for recruitment is people are like. You know, how do I how do I sign up on the app? And they're like, no, no, it's it's a, a form that you have to fill out with a pen, in in triplicate, kind of thing. And they're like, wait, wait, what? You know, and then that that actually sort of lowers trust in the whole system because these people are coming into it like new recruits are coming into it with all these expectations from all these other things. But then you also hear about things like the the VA, you know, where it's like you know got, you know, I don't know, like COBOL kind of systems or something like that. You know, like you know going back really far, which, you know, and, and, and so this, this work of digital transformation and sort of integrating these systems is still, there's still a lot, there's still a lot to do. It's, it's, it's so, it's so, the integrative aspect is so far behind our, um, desire for it, but there, and there are reasons for that. And some of them are good reasons, but there, and a lot of them are monetizing reasons, you know, um, I did a lot a long time ago. I did a project for Stanford where they were giving money. They wanted to give money to two journalist organizations, one very um, esteemed and prestigious, and one grassroots, really on the ground. Lots of really um, good energy happening around their approach to journalism, and they want just wanted to provide the ability to share data, to back up their their journalistic endeavors and so you know how do we do this and think you kind of don't because it's it's very it's it's improved since then but the challenge that 
these platforms, these information, like this, we designed software to say, come over to my house and I'll charge you admission to this great party I have going on in my living room. And that's our business model or advertising. Um, this page gets a million views a month. And so you can, you can, um, uh, we can charge you based on that. But now it, information is, it's ubiquitous. And we want to be able to engage, like you read an Economist article, and you want to be able to talk about that and share it and engage it. And and you don't go to their website like you might have, have done even 10 years ago to do this. You're doing it in all these ways. And so how do we even create that relationship, to have a relationship with you as a reader of a particular um, brand? How do we make it available to you? How do we um, know what you like and know, you know, be able to keep this relationship? And then also, how does this, how is it monetized? So there's all these reasons. And also the tech is still emerging. Like the tool set to be able to do this and the rules to be able to do it. But I would argue, and this has been the focus of most of what I do now, is that we're taught to think linearly and mechanistically. We are everything we know, and especially the way we approach software, came out of an industrial mindset. And that fails us when we try and design systems. And so we we the the what we, 50, even it was like 50 years ago, the phrase of um, um, of this being a crisis arose. And I met a woman recently in her 80s who was a uh, probably late 70s, and she was a COBOL programmer. And when I said that I was a systems architect, she said, oh, me too. And I'm like, really? And she's like, and she's telling me the way they were doing systems design in the late 60s and 70s. And she said, and she said, oh, but it, it must be better now. No, we're all writing books and teaching workshops because we're reinventing that time. Like we don't, we still haven't understood how to think in systems, how to communicate, how to organize ourselves to be able to um, to meet the challenge of increasing complexity and interrelationships. Yeah, that's really interesting. That just reminded me of a couple of, uh, I guess, kind of, you know, industry jokes, which might be that, you know, back, you know, back in the days when programming was new, you kind of tried to get things exactly right. So for example, if the, if, if, you know, if you, when you shot that rocket off to go to the moon, the code, the code better work, um, uh, you know, yeah, as, as simple as it might've been compared to nowadays, but then with increasing kind of, um, uh, you know, power on your, on your sort of desktop computer or what have you. And then with, you know, the proliferation of the web, we ended up with a lot of like, kind of, you know, you know, chewing gum and, and, uh, you know, shoestrings kind of being used to sort of make things just barely, just barely work. And uh, there are people who will say that like a lot of the actual, there was a lot more rigorous thinking going on rather than like, kind of just get it out and make it work. And in particular, you know, with the, with the advent of being able to update, update apps, for example, people will complain that actually people have become really lazy um and that why do you get the sense that everything's broken all the time and it's because well you know well there's this attitude that you can just update it but then that gets really complicated with things like continuous delivery and, and we had dave farley on on talking about that you know we're like actually constantly updating if you if you've got the right system behind it that's actually it's the opposite of what i was describing um uh, but any, anyway, you, you gave me, I was, I was look, looking for a segue uh, to ask you a very specific question and you granted it to me. So thank you very much for doing that. Uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, you write a lot about non and talk a lot about nonlinear thinking. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean, what you mean when you talk about nonlinear thinking and why it's so important to try and grasp what that means. So the reason first I'll start with that I say nonlinear thinking is because systems thinking which i also which i also use and and write about but it's being defined um and and explored differently and di like between academia or you can take marketing um workshops and in, in systems thinking for products and um and and in business and 
we don't really have a good vocabulary yet. So it can mean different things depending on the, on the origin. But they also mean pattern thinking. And that when you, and you described how we, we, um, so wonderfully actually about how we designed software in this more industrial way, but it, but good and perfect, like when this goes, it better work. Like there's, there's, there's lives on the line here. So we need to get the software right. And then we started having this freedom to duct tape things and and that's good enough and we can get you know put that everybody's afraid to do a prototype because it ends up in production and it stays there for forever and and now we're at this place where we we need to be able to design for emergence so we need to be able to design parts that you can you can build with some sense of autonomy and that the relationships between these parts make more than any of the parts could do on their own. So that the relationship then gives you all these qualities that you need in your software system. And in order to design for emergence and technology, we have to be able to do that between the people that are building technology, right? Everything in production is only what we thought and talked about and decided and then, and then did. And so this this whole process of being able to um, create processes, design for emergence, think about patterns, think about relationships between things, choreography, the timing of things, how how counterintuitive systems can be. We think we know, and then discover that we don't. All of these mindset shifts really kind of all have their own vocabulary and if i use one of them uh exclusively i'm kind of leaving out the others also the um the fifth discipline so peter senge's book which is still like i think one of the fifth best selling in its genre is a systems thinking book and it's basically that learning teams are systems thinking teams learning and metacognition are completely inextricable from nonlinear and and systems thinking and so um, the reason that it became such a focus for me is because in these big initiatives, um, digital, the, the idea of digital transformation has sort of even become a buzzword. It's like getting old and faded, and yet we still haven't really done it. Like, with the, as you said, right, we think that we, we don't really realize how siloed these and how... Um, how much we're trying to do an emergent process in a linear, in a linear style, and so it's it's just the Titanic over and over and over again. They hit you know these big initiatives hit an iceberg and they sink, and it became clear to me that the iceberg is we don't think in systems, we don't think in systems, we don't interrelate together, um, we don't set up our processes to support this, and then we can't we're surprised when it doesn't succeed. Yeah, that, that's really great. It's um, and very evocative, especially the way you're using the concept of emergence there. Um, I, was, I was just trying to think of um, the, I didn't know that that was interesting when you said that you were sort of, you know, doing, doing this work for the economist and then you sort of wrote a story um, about like the, 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 the tale of, of a, of an article, right? How, how is it conceived and how is it eventually published and how does it eventually go out? But I think, I think I would imagine normally when, when sort of like, you know, kind of, got some kind of programming task, you know, it's kind of like, well, let's, let's do a, let's, you know, let's, let's think about the code and let's think about features and stuff like that. But is taking a step back and going, you know what, let's just write a story about an article from beginning to end. Is that an example of nonlinear thinking? Like, yeah. And it's, it's the, um, it's being, is it, when you're, when you're doing nonlinear thinking, thinking about relationships, right? It's this ability to, um, take things apart without breaking them. So, you know, we used to upgrade. So we like spend years working on, you know, extending a giant piece of software and then the next version would come out and we migrate and you migrate, you know, you export the data and import the data and you resign. But over the last, you know, especially the last maybe five or eight years, um, our information, information systems can't do that anymore. They have, there's like, we have eight apps that, taken in for some of this information and refashion it 
in the case of The Economist, there's a lot of human moving, cutting, pasting, moving, especially images. At least there was, I don't, I don't, I can't speak for what it, what it is now, but there was at the time. And that's not unusual. If you have a little recipe blog, you know, so I publish a newsletter and, um, and the newsletter, you know, I do, uh, the newsletter goes out in the software it goes out in, and then I put it in the software of the website, and then I put it into software for it to go to different social media platforms with a different summary. Now, I know how to code this and, and make it work, um, and I get lazy, and I use downloadable, quickable, quick things and cut and paste, which then cost me more time in the end than it would for me to just use a graph, you know, put everything in a graph and and build front ends to to script it. But as you so well pointed out, these legacy systems have business critical processes and and uh, relationships between software and data, and they, they don't talk to each other. One of my favorite SKCDs, and it's in every system I saw, is this tiny little Python script that somebody, no one even remembers who, wrote that exports a big, you know, something important and, and so it can be imported. And if it breaks, the whole system will break. It's it, that it'll, it'll go down. And so we're, we're this, um, this sophistication of being able to share information with any, any context users are coming at information from all kinds of contexts. So we access something on our phone. We usually want different information than what we want when we're on our desktop. And so we even want software to give us information that we used to think of as a web page. Now we don't, a web page is, is, is becoming obsolete. We want information that fits the context that we're in when we ask for that information. And so systems thinking is about that. It's about architecting information systems that can, um, that can change and adapt to the context and the new contexts that are coming without having to go back at the beginning and rewrite all the software again um, to meet these emerging changes. That's that. So, you know, it's about what's the structure of this information? What's the events? that are happening in the system and how do we feed these events and use them and how do we enable the choreography to be changing and flexible and adaptive as opposed to just call and response. You need something, I give you everything. And uh, yeah, just to segue maybe into the next part of the interview and where we go, galaxy brain, um, because if we... If you think about, you know, we were thinking about systems and when we were thinking about systems and the way you were talking, we were, we were, you know, thinking about, you know, computer systems and like systems of publication and systems of consumption. But then there's the systems that we're using to articulate those things, which is our own thinking and, 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 you know, and our own, and our own communicating and writing. So we have to kind of, you mentioned metacognition and like there, there is this step that you have to do, or you have to start thinking about yourself and that can be very complicated. And of course, and as you mentioned, you know, maybe unless you've read a lot of, you know, Hegel and Heidegger or something like that, having a kind of like sophisticated little terminology even for thinking about thinking is something that you won't have, you just won't have it from your common sense, everyday interactions with things. And it's not, it's not a, a lack or a failure. It's just like, it's, it's, it's just not something that common sense is attuned to, uh, maybe because if we were, we, we couldn't get anything done. Um, but I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about like, maybe if we could talk about, um, move on to talking about your book, writing is thinking practices for technology professor, uh, professionals. Um, cause there are these sort of very straightforward practices that one can start with in order to build up, um, that, that you, that you write about. Um, and before we go into maybe what those specific practices are, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the concept of conceptual integrity, um, and what that means and why it's so important. Yeah. So, um, yes. And I love that. I love that we segued in, um, I love that we segued in this way because the, um, the thing that, that happened for me is the more I was doing systems, the more I was doing it through right written communication, 
And so I literally had a moment in my life where I went into a cabin in the woods for the weekend to decide if I was going to be a writer or a coder. And, and I decided to be a coder and I moved to Austin, Texas so that I could have the career that I wanted to have. And then down the road discovered that I, these are communication, these are, these are communication roles. It's different type and style of communication, but these are communication roles. And so the, um, and the, the, the conceptual integrity Fred Brooks says is the most important consideration in systems design. We struggle to to define it. It's sort of like pointing at the moon rather than having the experience of the moon. But what it basically means, if you think of a, a, the most basic system that Donella Meadows describes, you have input coming into a state and output. So you think of a bathtub, for example, right? So you put you turn the water on to fill the bathtub. You plug the plug so it doesn't it doesn't go out of the bathtub. And then you have a goal in mind, like, okay, I'd like it to be full enough so it doesn't overflow when I get into it and in a particular temperature. And so you start with discrepancies. It's empty. And so you're going to need such and such volume of water. Um, you want it to be such and such temperature. And so the process over time is that the discrepancies diminish as you move towards your goal. And so we're always in a situation where there's a whole bunch of inputs and outputs and changing states. It's why there's so much complexity. So ideas, when we're working, for example, if we're working, um, we're technology professional, we're working on technology teams, then there's a whole bunch of ideas and opinions and attitudes about how to build things, what we should build, what's the most important thing, which tools should we use, what practices. And then output is what we actually then put out into, into production, what we act on. And so conceptual integrity is the ability to take this giant bathtub of ideas, working code, all of the things that go into, into the cognitive structure, the conceptual structure of what we're building, and be able to identify goals and processes for resolving discrepancy, and also understanding how the relationships between have all these uh, simultaneous inputs and outputs and, and the world around it is changing world around your system, you might have a goal and then then there's the pandemic and suddenly how many goals, technology goals got abandoned in May of 2020 because they no longer served the world we were living in, right? So conceptual integrity is about being able to make something, uh, to make um, this process of thinking and ideas and constructing, but have it have a sense of cohesion have it be hang together and have a sense of wholeness. Fred Brooks says, if you look at a system, it looks like it's designed from one mind. And that work doesn't work great for, for me because I don't think it matters so much that it is one mind, but it does matter that it has some integrity, that there's good, strong relationships between the parts that you can, it doesn't look like the Weasley house. Right? It doesn't look like it's duct taped and you know you just spit on this to stick it to something else. There is, there's an elegance to how the system works and how the system evolves. And it also conceptual integrity helps to prioritize and decide as you're making changes, what's the deepest, most valuable mission that you're serving? Like how, what, what is it? an analogy I use a lot because it's it's in every code base is one group one group in the organization wanted a car one group in the organization wanted a boat so the engineers built a car boat nobody wanted a car boat like and so everybody's unhappy with a car boat and this question of why do we are can't we discern whether to build a car, whether to build a boat, how to do that process of reconciling these, all of that arises from conceptual integrity, right? Rather than con car boat is not conceptual integrity. Yeah.
Yeah, no, that's that's uh, or the, the the Homer. I think what was the the car that Homer got to build once in in a, in a famous uh, uh, Simpsons episode. Remember that one where it had like I don't know, like a big a big cup and a big holder for the big cup. And anyway, it, it's it's hilarious. Uh, but that that reminds me of it's a sort of designed by committee thing. But you, uh, something that you said struck me about uh, particularly when you mentioned the pandemic. But this idea of conceptual integrity. Um, and and also the idea that like when you're thinking about it, like there's the bathtub and the process of filling a bathtub and, and organizing a bath, but there's, of course, there's a cognitive structure that people must have of this in addition to this sort of system that we might think of external to ourselves. And one super, like when you talk about big, big projects failing, I've often, one of the sort of thoughts I have around this is that we can often have a vocabulary that kind of we use the same vocabulary, the same words even, uh, to, and, and even the same, same grammar to talk about very different things. Uh, and this can cause, we, when, when the conceptual integrity isn't actually there, and it's not, it's not, it's not simply a matter of agreement. Um, uh, when the conceptual integrity isn't there, things break down. And so, for example, one thing that became clear when the pandemic happened was that people used the word work to mean very different things. Um, so, for example, uh, it's time to get back to work is something people will say. What they mean is go to, the, go to a central office. Mm -hmm. And one thing that became very clear was that a lot of people didn't... I'm going to try to say this without being... Too, like, I'm very judgmental about this, but like, there are a lot of people for whom work actually was the process of like getting up and putting on a certain type of outfit and going to a certain place for a certain time of day and interacting with people in a kind of you whatever level of hierarchy there is that was what work was to them uh the the actual as it were kind of output was the behaviors that's it um and and anyway, I did just, uh, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but it struck me that, you know, for a lot of people, they can have this sort of mental, we think we have a shared mental model and things can actually really kind of go in parallel, but you're actually up to very different things. And if you can't articulate, Absolutely. if you can't articulate what you're doing, you, you even can articulate things in the same words and still have a very different concept that you're carrying. It's what I, the, the example that I use is to go into a situation and say agile and then see what happens, right? Because that is nowadays, that word means so many different things. And also it depends on your experience. If you've had really good experiences, you're like, ooh, this person's really trustworthy. If you've had bad experiences, you're like, we don't make her go away. Like, we don't want to talk to her. And when it comes to this kind of of work, um, conceptual integrity, you, you hit on it exactly this. And my colleagues and I talk about this a lot. We don't have a vocabulary yet. We, we kind of do, but when you use it, you move forward thinking everyone's solving the same problem, but they're not solving this. They didn't even start. I have been in meetings where it's as if everyone has a different why this matters. And the, the the discussion ends up going around and around and around. And it's not because people agree or disagree or what. It's because they're not even, it's the blind men and the elephant, the 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 cartoon of they're not solving, they're not, no one's seeing the, the whole. And so, and you touched on this too, because it's so important to me one of the things I started doing, and I felt so controversial, like, oh, I'm going to completely ruin any credibility in tech that I have whatsoever. But when I, um, when I teach on this, I start with self-awareness. You cannot change your mind if you are not aware of what you think, feel, and experience, and that you are the system. You are the generative system. And that self-awareness and the process of cultivating self-awareness is a, the essential systems skill. And this, this, I thought this was going to be more challenging to audience of technical professionals who are like, where's the Kubernetes? I, this is not like, this is, there's no Kafka in this story. I'm not interested. But in fact, 
um, it's it's it seems to be resonating with more than just you know the people I already knew that thought like that. And I think it's because that's really exactly what you said. All of the systems challenges that we're experiencing politically and on the planet as a whole and having gone through the pandemic and in our technology around us and what do we do, we are drowning in systems problems. And I think for a lot of people, that's come the awareness that there is no status quo business as usual process to just 10 steps and the last one will surprise you that's going to um, help us solve some of these problems. And and so I think that people have gotten a bit drowned out in this push for linear models, command and control, predictable McDonald's models of, of delivery. But the McDonald's models, they're not helping us now. And they, 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 they do. And to some extent, I don't want to, it's not a binary, right? You can't, you can't build software without linear thinking and without being able to build, um, to build in this way. And a little bit of control sometimes goes a long way towards creating something. Simultaneously, it's not, it's only one way of thinking. It's not the way, it's a way. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the, um, one of the things that I know you, when I was doing research for this, uh, interview, I was watching some of your talks on YouTube and things like that. And you, you talk about the sort of paradox of um of kind of trying to teach systems thinking i'm not putting this in my own words not in not in yours so i don't want to mis mis misrepresent anything but i've got this formulation but there's certain kinds of powers that must be possessed in order to be perceived um like you can't you can't know what the power of a certain kind of thing is until you actually have it uh but then there's just this inherent problem in teaching it to someone because they have to trust you that there's going to be some something that some revelation that they're going to have along the way um and uh, you've written a book with starting points <laughs> for 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 how yeah. how how one can do this because as you're saying you know writing and thinking like concept and communication these are very linked things um, so just to talk a little bit about your book um, <laughs> what are what are some yeah. what are some of the practices that you suggest that people can maybe start with or do do in their day to day lives to um, to try to to get better at at sort of this kind of thinking about yourself. And then thinking about yourselves in in groups. Yeah. So this is this was was actually perfect. We arrived at the like this is a great um, uh, came came in at the exact right time because what I don't know why it took me so long, but what I what I realized was that practices I had. So for example, every morning I get up, I go downstairs, I make myself a um, silk cream I silk creamer this is the only creamer for me in the world make myself an espresso come up I say good morning to Alexa she gives me information that I need and sets a timer for an hour and I write by hand every every morning um and I've been doing this for a very long time and I don't know how I would think without this practice and it I began to realize how how much my writing practices and the ways that I support my own my ability to think are um, are really essential to the work I do in technology. So, in um, the very first thing when I when I um, um, when a group of us when when I make a workshop and the group gets together, that's the first thing I ask everyone to do. You get up in the morning, you can just write, you know, a, a page or three pages. You can set a timer. It took me a long time to get to an hour. Like, don't do an hour. Just do. And it led to the discussion, if you have kids, when is your morning? Because it isn't because you get woken up. So um, so we start with this process of getting rid of the talking to people and just make some space to think to listen to your own mind and your own experiences and to listen to um, whatever it is that arises while you're doing this physical activity of writing because we're very cramped um, and we're constantly consuming information that manipulate is socially engineered to manipulate how we think. We lose track of how we think. And so that, that practice of... Um, of writing just just right 
just right. No, no other rules except consistency in in how you in how you do it. Um, and then from there to move into um, a focused writing session. So trying to uh, make some space for yourself during your day where you have an idea of an artifact that of some some form of written communication that you're trying to to create and that you immediately learn how again how cramped with expectation um so much of your time is and then the 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 third from there which um so far a lot of a lot of people that i've worked with have found the most powerful is designing feedback loops so we live in a situation in which feedback is a very tricky like like it's you know you're wrong let's let's start with like this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and and in order to improve the way that we're thinking we need feedback that helps strengthen the reasons that support our conclusions so if i say i recommend that we do this in this circumstance Here's the thing that we most, the, the mission we serve, and here's a recommendation that can help us move in that direction. Here are the three reasons that convinced me that this is a good direction for us to go in. When I get feedback, what I want to do first is strengthen those reasons, uncover any blind spots. Perhaps there's a whole piece of this situation I didn't even know. So I'm... You, then engaging with other people's expertise to help me create conceptual integrity, to create co cohesion in this recommendation, not is it right or wrong, not are we going to have a political war about this yet. That's coming. That happens. We have to go there. There will be a presentation on slides usually at some point in, in the lifespan of an idea. But for now, for the beginning, you're trying to make it as strong and well thought out and from multiple points of view so that you really can see the pros and cons of what you're trying to do. And so when we design feedback loops that help us do that, we're automatically thinking well together. And we can do that with other people too. And that is a place to start as opposed to what we usually do, which is we're opinion driven. Here's my opinion. Change my mind. Here's my opinion. Change my mind. But nobody's not. I mean, so I was asked once in a in uh, podcast interview. I loved this moment because it never occurred to me. He, we talked about cat herding roles. You know, an architect is often that. You know, for a systems architect, is a, it can be a cat herding role where you're kind of trying to get all these uh, agendas integrated. And I and I was like, you know what? Nobody gets to be a cat. And ever since it came out of my mouth, I'm like, that's really what I think. I really feel like no one gets to be a cat, that we have to all be leaning in a bit to be critically thinking with other people and not just say, this looks like a graph. Graphs don't scale. What convinced you? What are the reasons? How do we engage more deeply? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's really great, especially thinking about like as, as a system that we're that we're self aware of as a group, where like feedback feedback is not the same thing as opinion, um, yes. <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, uh, and once, but but we have to talk about it to get to that place where we've agreed on that. Oh, right, yeah, no, no. What we mean by feedback here is giving giving reasons or an explanation rather than simply a conclusion or an an, an expression of an intuition or something like that. Um, we could talk about this for a long time. Um, there's one thing when it comes to feedback as well. There's sort of interesting things that you talk about where there's a thing called that you that you talk about called fear thinking, which I which I when I when I when I came across that phrase, I was like, oh, that's me, you know, um, uh, the 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 or me most of the time, which is like the feedback I want is you didn't fuck up, um, mm. you know, and that that's what I'm intuitively looking for. Um, and so, you know, but becoming self-aware, not just about what other people are giving you, but what you're expecting and what you're responding to and why, uh, can just be incredibly helpful. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you about your book is something you, you drop in there, uh, which is you, you insist uh, that, uh, writing by hand, like with a pen or a pencil is a crucial element of this, this writing practice that you do in your, in your morning. Um, and I was just wondering if you could take a moment to talk to talk about that to maybe sort of people who are skeptical about about why like writing with a with a pen would be so, yeah. so important. 
I love this question. And I want to say very quickly, this, the fear writing, this question of, um, am I right? Which I totally get. The beauty of complexity is that you can't ever know. So you might as well stop seeking it because you can just come up the best possible solution under the circumstances right now. That's it. That's as good as it gets. There's no, there's no right. It's kind of liberating, but I still have the same. Is this good? <laughs> is this good? So the reason, the experience is part of the reason that I advocate for this. And I only have theories that I have no real justification for. I mean, other people have agreed with, have said the same theories about the physical act of moving the, the hand, right? Of forming the letters. It's kind of like painting the words rather than typing the words. Um, works differently in our minds. It gives us a much more intimate physical experience of what we're thinking and experiencing. And for me, I've I've done this free writing with digital tools. I even tried it with my iPad and the style and the stylus. And it's not. It's lighter. It's kind of like eating junk food in my body rather than than what it's like to do real food so what i what i say to people is start with by hand because everything in you know a lot of experience has showed me that there that's that's the way to create the physical interconnection the physical experience and then if it doesn't work for you you can try and see, and and I'm maybe I'm wrong, or maybe I'm wrong for some people, or maybe I'm wrong for people who grew up always writing with their thumbs, which I didn't. But I do think that there is a quality to painting the words, writing the words, the visceral, the visceral experience of that that gives us a lot more access. Um, and a lot less, we feel a lot light, less like we're communicating outside of ourselves and a lot more like we're, it's, it's more yoga and meditation or all of these other physical activities and less the conditioned pattern of I'm talking to somebody, like I'm, I'm saying something, I'm putting something out. I think you both, I do both, obviously, right? I don't write everything by hand, I do both. But for the morning practice, I feel very confident that that it's that's the place to start at least and see if I'm right for for any individual. Some people the morning practice doesn't they end up they ne they abandon it they never come back to it. So, but most people that I've worked with um, find it beneficial and find it beneficial by hand. So I trust it enough to try. Thanks very much for that really great explanation. It um it reminded me of something. I mean, and this is you know generational, but um you know I remember uh, some of like the sort of most exciting thinking I've had in my own life was in in lectures when I'd start I'd just to go down a path and I'd be I'd start writing writing out in my notebook um you know things and the the big difference between that and typing was that typing is kind of like for other people in a mm -hmm. sense. Um, whereas handwriting was, was kind of just for me. So handwriting was, was more like thoughts, like rather than it was the thinking itself rather than, rather than communicating. Um, but anyway, thanks. Thanks very much for that. That's great. And like, as you say, like everyone try it, try it for yourself, see if it works, see what works. Um, and you might be, you might be pleasantly surprised. Um, the last question I always like to ask on the podcast, if the guest is a, is, has been using LeanPub is. Um, if there was, when you were using LeanPub, if there was one thing that had you shaking your fist going, damn you, LeanPub, um, or that we could fix for you, or if there was one magical feature that we could build for you, is there anything that you can think of that you would ask us to do? Well, so the first thing is I want to thank you for the GitHub integration. Like that, that I love that, like 100% love that. And um, the only trouble that I had is that I had markdown that was underlined and it went past the end of the this into the margin and so i took out the underlines of a sentence that was longer than one line and i don't i didn't try and solve it i didn't care i didn't even mean to use the underline i think i meant italics so it didn't hurt me but i don't know why the formatting got broken this is the only challenge that i've had
Yeah, thanks very much for that really detailed feedback. That's really great. I'll, I've already got an idea of how I can try and reproduce it. Um, things things going out into the margin has been just this, like, we, we, we kind of solved it in a way, like, not too long ago, actually, after, like, a really long time of having big problems with that, particularly with, like, um, monocode kind of, like, inline code samples. Those kinds of things would, would yeah. spill over into the margins a lot. Um, and uh, so, anyway, yeah, no, thanks very much for that. Uh, that's really great. And uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day uh, to talk to me and to talk to our audience. And thank you very much for being a Lean Pub author. Well, my pleasure. I'm, I, I'm so appreciative of, um, of your mission and what you're trying to do and for making this time to talk. I just a big fan. And I, I really appreciate, and it was a very enjoyable. I can't believe the time's gone by already. It was very enjoyable to talk to you. So um, I have to write more books and publish them on after I finish this and keep publishing on LeanPub so we can do more. Please do. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.